0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Before we get started with today's guest, I want to tell you about Two Bettys. So Two betties is a healthy snack option. So check the label on a lot of the snacks that you eat, and you'll be amazed at how much sugar is in a lot of the snacks that we consume. So I was introduced to Two Bettys Rounds. They look like these mini donuts. But they're far from donuts. Uh, they're 100% natural, grain-free, and sweetened only with a touch of maple syrup and honey. They're chewy, they're delicious, and a great way to fuel or start your day. So go over and visit 2 That's the number two in the word Bettys.com. And when you go over there, you can type in the word intentional when you're checking out, and they'll give you 15% off your first order. So thanks to 2 betties for supporting the podcast, and make sure you go check out their website as well. Additionally, we want to tell you about our Patreon homepage. So you can check it out at patreon.com backslash intentional performers. And if you go over there, you'll notice that there's an opportunity to sponsor our show. And if you sponsor us either with a $5 donation a month or $10 donation a month, we're going to give you a shout out on the show, which we are going to do right now. So Dr. Adam Esco and his dad, Dr. Roy Esco run a periodontist uh, office in the Bethesda and Washington DC area. They've got two locations and you can check them out at Bethesda Dental Implant Center, BethesdaDentalImplantCenter.com and look up the work that they do unfortunately for me I've got some recessed gums so I've gone over there and seen Dr. Adam and he takes great care of me actually when, when I went in there we actually listened to some of our favorite podcasts and Adam I know is a big podcast listener has been a big supporter of the show so thanks to Dr. Adam and Dr. Roy who was my first basketball coach uh, and I owe a lot of my basketball success or lack thereof to Dr. Roy but I just appreciate both Adam and Roy for supporting the show so go over and check them out if you're in the Bethesda or DC area and you need some help uh, with your gums and uh, I know a lot of us do so thanks to them for supporting it and now we're gonna cue the music
1: and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me different sayings that mean a lot to me uh, things that I strive for recognizing my responsibility to give back reoccurring mantra
0: I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold.
1: Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home, went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray in my wall, no quit in me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. You got to remember is you're transferring energy, and whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest.
0: Today's guest is Danny Ferry. Danny is somebody who I've gotten to know over the years, and honestly, he's one of the smartest people and one of the most intelligent people that I've interacted with. In the sports world so Danny was really born into basketball as he'll talk about his dad played professionally and also was in the front office with the Washington Bullets for a number of years his older brother played collegiately at Harvard and so Danny was really in some ways born to play basketball and play basketball he did so he attended Damatha Matha Catholic High School in Hyattsville Maryland which is right next to University of Maryland and he was He really turned into a star player there, which led to him going to Duke University, where he also starred, and led to him being the second pick in the NBA draft. So Danny has had a lot of accolades. I'm not going to list all of them in this intro, but he was very successful in high school, very successful in college, and then he really had a long career in the NBA. Uh, After that, he went on to work in the San Antonio Spurs front office and serve as the general manager for the Cleveland Cavaliers and then the Atlanta Hawks. So he's built teams. He's been a part of championship teams. Uh, He's seen it from the inside out. Um, He also has played for arguably three of the best basketball coaches in the world uh, one at the high school level one at the college level one at the pro level so that's going to be one of the constants that we're going to talk about in this conversation is what was it like to play for those coaches and what made them special what made them unique where was their gift uh, what was their unfair advantage? So we're going to get into the weeds on coaching. Uh, we're going to get into the weeds on culture. How do you build an organization? Uh, how do you become your best as a performer? And Danny will talk about some of his own experience with the psychology of basketball and how that impacted his career as well. So Danny is just a really thoughtful guy. He is somebody who I have immense respect for and in a lot of ways he's been a mentor for me as I've tried to navigate the sports world and all of the intricacies that come along with that. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Danny and when you do we would love for you to share it. So share it on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever your social. LinkedIn is somewhere where I like to post information a lot so please share it and if you happen to like this conversation please go over to iTunes and give us a review over there as well. It really helps us out. Danny is not on social media So hopefully you guys can help get the word out about this conversation. But without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Danny Ferry. Danny, thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. We are broadcasting from Damatha High School. And I'm imagining and visualizing in my head right now of what you look like as a high school kid. And I don't really have any images. So I would love for you to try to explain to us what was this place like for you? I'm not going to say how many years ago, but what was it like for you to go to this school? And what was that experience like for you starting off at at Damatha?
1: Well, I'd I'd been around Damatha a lot because my older brother was here. So, uh, you know, as a fifth grader, my brother was a freshman. And we'd come here a lot and watch. And, you know, I basically just wanted to be like my big brother. And uh, this was already. Very established, well known basketball school. Um, and, you know, he, uh, he was on some good teams and being able to follow it and be around it and come and wait for him and carpool afterwards so we can get home. You know, just around a lot and breathe it a lot. So, you know, DeMathis was just natural progression for me mainly because of my brother. By the time I was in ninth grade, I was 6'10 already. Uh, I had kind of done growing uh, and uh, I'm still, I'm, now I'm shrinking, I guess. Yes. At my age, but uh, I was able to come in and play right away. I was very skinny, um, but uh, able to play on good teams right away, and you know had great experiences here. And playing for Morgan Wooten was uh, one of the one of the great things and luckiest things I've ever had.
0: So you're six foot ten in eighth grade. Ninth
1: grade. Ninth grade.
0: Ninth grade. What were you like in eighth grade? Six
1: four. So big. Six inches. I grew six inches, almost just over the summer. I had a crazy summer of growing in between 8th and ninth grade. Uh, it, was, uh, it was shocking.
0: So for those that aren't from Washington, D.C., and DeMatha has some national recognition too, but paint the picture of what it's like as a 6'4 8th grader and then a 6'10 ninth grader coming to school here and seeing your big brother come here. Walk us through what it's like to be at DeMatha, to be 6'10 at DeMatha, what what is that all like for you at that point in your
1: life? I you know the fact that I got to play varsity as a freshman, being around Coach Wooten, um, having my high school buddies. I mean, DeMatha's is you know roughly a thousand kids, all boys, nine to twelve nine to twelve grade. Um, so you know it's a it's a unique atmosphere, um, and being able to come here and play for Coach Wooten um, right away, uh, it was you know it was unusual. And I knew that it was unusual. Had a freshman ever played varsity? Uh, only one, only Adrian Danley was the uh, only other player at the time who who had. And were you aware of that at that point?
0: That this is special. That I'm getting to do this as a freshman.
1: I I I, I was aware, but I was you know I was young and dumb or oblivious oblivious to things a little bit, and you know it was a point of my basketball career that was probably the best because I just wasn't thinking a whole lot, you know I was... As you and I, you and I have talked uh, over the years, uh, as you get older or as I got older, I started thinking too much, and you know, kind of had to get back to back to how I was in high school, or wasn't thinking too much about the past or future or anything like that. Uh, I, I was really good at that when I was young. It's an amazing thing. Uh, one of my favorite phrases is "think like a pro,
0: but play like a kid." And you don't have to be a pro to think like a pro, and you don't have to be a kid to play like a kid.
1: Yeah, I mean, or it's you know, you know. Th- Take things serious, but don't take yourself serious. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of times we start to take ourselves a little too serious. It's one of the great things that Popovich teaches you, is, you know, get over yourself. Um, it's, a, it's a thing he says constantly. Um, when you get in too much or too down or too whatever, you know, get over yourself, throw yourself into the group. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a very important part of their culture. So you're at DeMatha. What kind of success
0: did you have in high school uh, personally and then from a team standpoint?
1: We were good, uh, very good in high school. We were always, you know, in the top two or three best teams in in DC area. Um, won the city title a couple times. Um, as I progressed and kind of figured out, you know, grew into my body that was all of a sudden six ten and got a little more coordinated. Um, I ended up being a, a good high school player. My my junior year, we were the mythical national champions. Um, Played with a guy, Carlton Valentine. I was probably even the best player on the team that year. Carlton Valentine probably was, who ended up playing at Michigan State, his son's Denzel. Carlton was a 6'4 center that played in the Big Ten and was a 6'4 center, but he just had great hands, a strong rear end, and and used used it well and could really score. And then the next year, um, we were first, second ranked team in the country overall. I ended up being uh, player of the year in, in high school nationally um and you know a lot of that along with that was all around the recruiting and all that stuff that that starts to float you know float that last year especially back then we didn't you didn't do it quite as early you did it later
0: so when you're not only one of the best players at dematha but now you're getting recognition nationally how does an 18 year old you handle that recognition um and deal with that and did that impact you at all as you Went forward.
1: You know, one thing we haven't talked about, which was made my situation a little unusual, is I also had a father who was general manager of the Washington Bullets, which is which is now the Wizards. Um, so I was in a gym with pros um, my whole life. Um, I grew up with Wes on and I grew up with Elvin Hayes, and Elvin Hayes's kid, and Wes's Wes's kid. I was in the gym all the time. I'd go to college games all the time with my dad because he was scouting. It was way. It was just that that was the babysitter was going to games. So, you know, I didn't really whatever was going on here just didn't seem like as nearly as big a deal. And I think it helped keep it into pretty good perspective overall.
0: It's one of the interesting things that I've talked about with other guests on this podcast. You look at the NBA today and you've got people, uh, and I'll just mention them, you've got Stephen Curry. Before that you had Kobe Bryant, you've got Tim Hardaway Jr. Glenn Robinson, the third, you've got guys whose dads played professional basketball for you having a dad that played professional basketball and then was in the organization and around it all the time how do you think that helped shape your mindset uh, when it came to coming on the court with guys and
1: competing well I mean the fact that I was out playing horse with NBA players when I was you know 14 years old uh, you know I just had a different different uh view of maybe the basketball world and where I was in it I was some little kid playing it in high school These were the guys that were really doing something. And it was, they were my family's friends. Um, Some of the guys lived with us at times. You know, Manute Bowl lived with us for a while. I was his chauffeur. (laughs) Um, So, you know, again, my situation was, you know, ridiculously unique. Um, Some of those other guys, you talk about Curry, those guys. I think it's part, you know, the, the, the ability for Del Curry to work with his son at a really young age. And for the kid to be pretty good early, that he found the love for it. But I, I just think, you know, having having my dad, for example, he leaned on me a little bit around basketball, not too hard, but he did lean on me to make sure that I was working at it and could be pretty good and the whole deal. And but he leaned on me in a way that, you know, he also was teaching me the right things um, overall, teaching me the right way to shoot. Right, write two or three things to simplify my game that could be effective. For example, and I was learning those things when I was 14, 15 years old, from someone that really knew.
0: The other thing I think it does, and and talking to pro athletes who either they had an uncle or a dad, or they grew up in an area where there were other pro athletes, is it normalizes it for them. It's like, yeah, I can I can do that. Like I know my dad, like he puts on his jeans the same way that I do, or his sneakers on the same way I do, or I'm around Manute Bol, who someone else might be intimidated by a seven foot seven, seven foot six guy. It's like, no, yeah, like I know him, he's human. And I think the same thing happens for people that are in environments with doctors or lawyers or business people. If they're around it, then it's not abnormal for them to follow that path. As you reflect, obviously it's not not something you're aware of when you're in it, but I think about like my dad being in business and going to business for himself, it wasn't as scary for me, right? I didn't think it was abnormal to go that path. Uh, and Both my brothers sort of followed that path in a lot of ways too. So I'm just curious if you can connect those dots and reflect at all on, on your upbringing and how the normalization impacted you.
1: I think, it, you know, normalization, I think, you know, what you're saying is right. You know, I think also, like, like you said, I was getting a lot of attention as a 17 and 18 year old person but it wasn't nearly the attention that these other guys were getting. So it kind of kept it in the right perspective for me. Um, you know, he also had you brought up your brothers. You know, one of the things for me was I was really just trying to. It, when I was around those guys, I put things in perspective. But I was really just trying to be like my big brother, mm. and that was my model. That's what I was following. And he was a good player. He ended up playing at Harvard. Uh, got drafted in in the NBA draft. Didn't end up playing, but I mean, he 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 was a great role model for me and kind of kept me in line okay this is the path you take this is how you know as I said earlier I wanted to come to DeMatha because I was just trying to be like him so he goes to Harvard walk us through getting
0: recruited as the best player in high school or maybe you're probably being recruited before that even recognition Um, what was that recruiting process like and then take us to your decision to
1: go to Duke uh, again, unique because my dad knew all the coaches personally f- before all of this.
0: I've been around your dad, and some of his dad is an amazing storyteller. And w- like his dad tells the story of these coaches coming to recruit Danny, and there are some f- just unreal stories because those coaches are used to just putting on like their sales pitch and doing what they need to do. But your dad <laughs> knew probably too much. About that process, so share any of that or what that process was like from your perspective. Well,
1: he would tell one coach, for example, they'd come for a home visit. and He says, "Well, he's not coming here, so let's just have a drink." Yeah, <laughs> and it just kind of changed the tone of it all. And uh, Cause you know, that coach it was, had to go I mean, and recruit you. It was right? fun, yeah. You know, it was. It, I think the coaches enjoyed it. Um, you know, like my dad. My dad is an, an entertaining guy, a good-hearted person, all those things. You know, he was compassionate towards what they were going through and what they had to go through, and he just kind of made it fun for them. Um, and, and different for them as well. So, you know, overall it was a good experience. I, when I was doing the college thing, I wanted to I wanted to play in the ACC. I grew up here in Maryland, and it was AC, back then it was ACC territory. Now it's Big Ten, I guess, but um, I wanted to be uh, in that conference, and I, I wanted to go away. So, you know, in the end I took, took four visits in you know, Duke, Carolina, Virginia, and Maryland, and really just wanted to end up, uh, it ended up coming down between Duke and Carolina.
0: Talk about the experience being at Duke. Uh, you've mentioned two coaches so far. Uh, you mentioned Morgan Wooten, who, for those that don't know, Morgan Wooten is in the Basketball Hall of Fame. is a legendary high school basketball coach. I think when people think of high school basketball coaches, they think of Morgan Wooten. And then you've got Coach Popovich, who you mentioned, uh, and how he thinks about you know getting over yourself. and And we'll get more into Pop. But you play for a coach in college um, who is you know, now as legendary as a college coach as there is. uh, What was it like going to Duke, playing for Coach K, going there, getting the recognition of being high school player of the year, all that sort of mix? Uh, Talk about your experience at Duke.
1: I probably, first of all, go back to what you're saying, between Morgan Wooten, Coach K, and Popovich, I've probably had a better experience with coaching than maybe anyone ever. Anyone. Like, that is a trifecta. Like
0: I just want to – because some people listen to this and not – be basketball people like we have a wide range of people i just want to really crystallize this because people i don't think get it like we are talking about the best uh, the best high school basketball coach arguably the best college basketball coach arguably and the best professional basketball coach arguably in history like these three guys um and what they've done in their respective places and spaces and how they've thought about things and creating culture and innovating um are just unreal and as i the, the one thing i was like i have to get your perspective on is, is playing for those three guys and right. we're gonna do more of that but let's hone in on coach k and also what it was like to be at Duke.
1: well it's quite a contrast from high school um you know in high school i played for a coach that barely raised his voice never cursed and Coach K, especially then, um, he raised his voice a lot and he cursed a lot. So, you know, just a different atmosphere altogether. Um, you know, DeMatha was already an established place of excellence. Um, at the time for Coach K, they were just starting to establish excellence again, you know, and, and for the first time in his era uh, with Johnny Dawkins and Jay Billis and. Uh, Mark Allery, David Henderson, you know, that was the group that kind of put the, Tommy Emacher, that was the group that kind of put the math, of, I'm, excuse me, Duke back in the, in the world, and I jumped on the, the back end of that. And, uh, you know, the combination of playing for Coach, who was incredibly passionate, uh, an incredible communicator, those are all the things that came through during the recruiting process. Um, it was really a differentiator, in my mind, and you know, the, just his passion and his ability to communicate and his vision for how to play and where he thought Duke could go. At the time, it just felt good. It was different than what anyone else, you know, the emotion part of it, the connection part of it, all of those things, it was just different. And playing for him um, was an incredible experience. You know, again, I, I was able to walk in and have mentors right away, you know, I learned more from Johnny Dawkins just in the first two months of just seeing what focused work looks like. I mean, I thought I'd always worked hard. Seeing him uh, work the way he did. Coach K having a role model, or um, he's saying just, you know, look what he's doing. That's what you should do. What was he doing? What does focused work look like for Johnny Dawkins? Uh, Johnny, you know, I mean, he'd be in the gym, uh, in the weight room, uh, in a very structured way. and uh, he would the repetitions and the amount of work he would do was just more than I'd ever seen. I mean, even around the pro guys that I was around, the little bit I was, I had just not seen someone with the discipline, work approach that he had. And you know, as far as getting shots, as far as being in the weight room, as far as ball handling, I had just hadn't seen it to that level before. And I really think, you know, in the whole Duke thing. Coach K is obviously the most important. I'd argue that Johnny's the second most important. First of all, he made Duke cool again, and then you know he he he, as much as anyone, really established the culture of playing hard and work, and everyone else did it as well. But he just because he was the such a great player in college, and the way he went about his business, it. it was an example for me. It was the example for the people that came after us.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned Tommy Amaker, who's now the head coach at Harvard, which is interesting that your brother went to Harvard and sort of uh, maybe the appeal that, or a connection between Duke and Harvard, because I just watched a video literally yesterday where Amaker, I think Duke was actually going up to play at Harvard and Amaker was talking about his experiences at Duke and how they, they have so many people within their organizations that have come from Duke and they're now at Harvard. And Amica was really talking about the culture at Duke and how he tries to bring that to Harvard and what he does at Harvard. Um, So it's just interesting as I sort of connect the dots and start to think and hear about the culture and what matters and the values of those organizations. And it was very clear that, you know, Tommy was talking about how Coach K instilled accountability and, and this idea of working hard and discipline and this stuff in him. And then he's now taking that to a school like Harvard, where they certainly have that academically, I don't think anyone would deny that, but bringing it to the basketball program as he's done um, is also really impressive.
1: You know, you go to, a, a, I've been to Tommy's practices, I've been to Coach Kay's. there's very, a lot of similarities. Their temperaments are very different, first of all. So there's some differences as well. I mean, you know, Tommy's got to be himself. But the practices run fast, and they're efficient. And um, there's not a lot of standing around. They're not in the gym nearly as long as, as maybe other, other teams. But I think they get as much, if not more, done. Uh, and it just kind of runs like clockwork, fast, in a fast and efficient way with, with a lot of intensity.
0: Very cool. Uh, you guys went to the final four three straight years when you were at Duke?
1: I was there three out of four years, so my, fre- my freshman year. Um, and then we went back my junior and senior year as well.
0: What was it like playing on those stages and making it to those, you know, big time games and playing in those games and handling the pressure of playing in Final Fours? Walk us through what it was like personally for you.
1: Well, again, I was just kind of riding everybody's coattails my freshman year. I got to play, I got to play a lot, uh, but I was not a primary player. I mean, it was Johnny's team, Mark Allery's team, really other guys all all supported that. Um, And as I got there being more of a focal point from a media standpoint and more of a, you know, it it got to be harder, heavier or whatever it is, but still a lot of fun. Um, And, you know, it was a different time then than it is now as well. So, you know, I I can't imagine now, you know, some of these kids that are having to deal with this with all the social media, just all the media in general. um, You know, it's just gotten so big uh, and overwhelming that, uh, you know, kids have to be tough and strong and coaches have to be even better.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting thing for these freshmen now. If you were in their shoes and you were coming in and you're a you know, player of the year in high school, you're going to Duke today, the expectation would be that you're gonna be there for a year. How do you think that would have been different for your growth or just your life? And how would, how would that have been different in your as you think back on your, on your career?
1: Well, the way it is now too, if you, if you go for two years, it's almost like what's wrong with the
0: kid? Yeah, negative.
1: And, um, you know, my four years in college, I almost left my, after my junior year. I didn't, I, I got close. But, uh, you know, those four years were so rich for me as far as just growing up, having, having an incredible life experience. Um, I don't know how I would have handled things socially, jumping, and I was, you know, I mean, I grew up in a, a great environment uh, and being around it. But even still, as a 19-year-old, how I would have handled um, the situation, how I would have handled not playing, because I probably wouldn't have played much at all, and trying to work my way up, it would, have been, it would have been harder. It definitely would have been. And That said, I think um, the NBA wasn't equipped for that like it is now. And I think the NBA is equipped to, ha- equipped to handle those things for the, the, the most talented guys. And you know, I probably couldn't have done it then, just physically, athletically. I was not um, a freak by any means. Um, and it, you know you got to be able to keep up physically a little bit before you can you know really have an impact there.
0: So when you said that I just had to I, I had to think about this and I didn't think about this coming into this conversation but you're six foot ten you can shoot the ball. Uh, we would call that a stretch four today yeah. correct yeah now, would you be better off playing in this era or the era that you played in?
1: Um, I would be better off probably playing in this era. Um, I think skill, is more celebrated and more appreciated and more important now. I've been more of a spacer. But I think by the end of my career, um, you know, 2002, 2003, there was a lot more stretch fours, for example. Um, Rudy T was a big guy in establishing that and, you know, something that Popovich uh, uh, really pushed as well. In Cleveland, I played primarily four and we had good teams and a lot of pick and roll and the whole deal that um, was effective. So... You know, I and I, I was a three and a four. I think, obviously, most more much more effective for me was being a stretch four and in early days of those things. It's uh, I think the game's beautiful right now. By the way, in saying that, I, the fact you know the pace and space and athleticism, but the skill like some of these the shooting like I've never seen anybody shoot like Curry. I mean, and there's everybody's starting to extend way out. It's the game's beautiful right now. It's in a wonderful spot.
0: I agree. Um, so let's just cap, put a cap on the Duke experience. So I believe your senior year, that's when you have Hurley and, and Leitner coming in. Was that their freshman year?
1: Uh, I didn't play with Hurley Leitner. So I was a senior, Leitner was a freshman.
0: Right. So what was
1: that like when he was a freshman and you were a senior? Um, you know, it was kind of big brother, a little hard on little brother. Um, and I think it was probably he needed it. Um, you know, it was – Quinn Snyder was my roommate, and he was a senior as well. And we were kind of good, good cop, bad cop. And I was bad cop. Um, you know, Christian came in cocky, but good. And um, you know, between Quinn, between Quinn and I, as being captains that year, we, we, you know, I think we did a pretty good job with him, helping him start to get raised the right way. And uh, you know, he was really important for our team down the stretch that freshman year. Really important.
0: And from a mental standpoint, playing at Duke, playing in front of the Cameron Crazies, playing in the ACC, did you do anything mentally to set your mind for games when you were at Duke?
1: Um, Not that I was aware of. Uh, You know, I think um, I remember in hindsight once I started to kind of get into sports psychology and read a little bit about it, it's like, yeah, I used to do something like that in college. And there were times uh, during a game, for example, that I would kind of reset my mind. Um, just by, you know, kind of focusing on breathing or f- focusing on, you know, I'd jiggle my legs for a little bit, for example, and it would just kind of help me kind of get locked in and get rid of whatever else was on my mind. I didn't realize that that was sports psychology or a start of me, you know, thinking through that way. But in college, I did start to do some of those things uh, unknowingly. I think the beautiful thing of psychology is that it is the
0: study of human behavior. And a lot of times we are doing tools and techniques or concepts or ideas without consciously deciding to do it. So everything that we are, everything that we need to be successful is really already inside of us. So it's just pulling that out and making it more of a system or a process or a tool so we can leverage it more often. But uh, you watch a lot of guys go to the free throw line in college or pro and they take a breath before they shoot a free throw. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's because... Somebody said to them, you have to take a breath before you take a free throw. I think it's because they've somehow learned that, oh, that breath helps relax my body, relax my mind. And I'm going to leverage that in this space that's now closed, as opposed to a game which is very open and fast-paced. Now I'm at this line. Things have stopped. We just take that breath. Um, so it's an, it's an interesting.
1: Well, the free throw line is interesting because it's, you know, way back before sports psychology was talked about in basketball, maybe. I mean, that's not true. Some people were. Um, but to the point where it's a tool now compared to in 1985 For some reason they always tell you like do the same thing at the free throw line every time. So, routine. Routine. Like okay at some level that's a sports psychology thing but it was never even approached that way but it's like okay, okay what's your routine? Three dribbles spin in your hand. Okay shoot. What? why? <laughs> why was a routine important? Everyone did it. I don't think anyone knew why um, and uh you know it's been been part of the game for a long long time i think and the reason why is because if we don't have a
0: system we're going to let the environment or the situation dictate our process and so the routine is just an opportunity for us to dictate to the environment, what we want to do. That doesn't mean you're not going to get negative thoughts. I had Akeem Warwick on here, and he missed two key free throws before he had the block to win a championship for Syracuse, my alma mater, so shout out to the orange. But, um, you know, he said, like, when I got to that free throw line, my mind was flooded after I missed my first one because they were up three, and he had a chance to really put the game away against Kansas. And so it's not blocking the thoughts out, but it gives us something to go to when those thoughts do come in to help us
1: out yeah but in 1980 or 1985 i think most of the coaches telling you that didn't i don't think they, they thought of it that way I don't, I don't i don't know i mean i think as time's evolved but i'm not so sure that when you have a routine because it helps you block everything out or whatever it is i'm not sure but it's just it's something that uh you know young kids do sure and you know my my fifth grade son he does three dribbles and you know, like why? because well, yeah. I saw him do it. Okay, then you know. Okay, you got your routine. Okay, good. That's great. Smart. Sure. I'm not going to tell him why it is, but it's a good. He, you know, he's doing it because it looks good.
0: Yeah, and, and I think I think the why of things <coughs> is often necessary, um, but not always. And like I always am interested and intrigued by the athletes that need to know why for everything, and then those who will just get in line. Uh, I was literally having a co- uh, co- conversation with a college coach this morning, and he was talking about. Uh, one of his players and he just said you know he's a why guy he always wants to know like why do we do this why do we do that Uh, rather than just get in line like no this is you just need to do your job Um, and so that dynamic I think is interesting and you see it in in players there are definitely guys who need to know why for everything and then there's guys who get in line and going back to Popovich like some of my favorite moments with that Spurs with those Spurs teams are like when Tony Parker will go in the huddle and start drawing up plays. Right. Um, and like having the freedom to do that and Pop not saying, give me the clipboard and that's my job. Um, and balancing that with also Pop laying into Tim Duncan and telling him that he's not doing his job. Uh, and having that push-pull effect and knowing when it's time to just do as I say because I, you, we've developed a relationship and you should trust me that I'm, I know what's best whereas there's also opportunities for a player to come to the bench and say hey pop I'm seeing it this way or I'm seeing it that way. So that push pull is also something that that really fascinates me.
1: Yeah, he gives you ownership, you know. Pop gives you ownership, especially if you've been there for a while. He clearly Earned gives it. you in game, away from the game, whatever it is, he'll give you he'll give you a good listen or he'll allow you the leeway or sometimes he'll say hey Tony, just you go do it. Because he wants him to think about the game and think about the team and, and feel more ownership over the whole thing.
0: I want to I just continue on, on your journey a little bit. So you leave uh, Duke, uh, you're the second pick of the draft, and you take a little different route to the NBA. So you go to Italy, um, and I want to know what it's like to then be, what, 22 years old, being in Italy, uh, playing over there with grown men uh and what that experience is like that year of playing in italy and what that what that did for you or or what that experience was like
1: it was great in some ways but it wasn't what i wanted to do and uh you know it was different the team wasn't very good so they didn't qualify for any cups the year before so we only played one game a week uh that's so i don't know how football players do it lose a game have a bad game and you sit out a whole week
0: they throw themselves into film and and the nuances Uh, because it's
1: crazy that's That's hard to sit there and fester over a loss. You know, the great thing about the NBA, hey, games fly, it's coming, you gotta get over it quick. Uh, Whereas in the NFL, or the year I played in Italy with the one game a week, I mean, you can really fester it pretty good. Um, But, you know, I enjoyed the year in Italy from a life experience, from a basketball experience. It was okay. I ended up getting hurt over there. Um, I banged knees with Bob McAdoo in the All-Star game. Uh, and ultimately, uh, a few years later, I ended up needing to get a microfracture because of the injury. Um, so it really set me back uh, early in my career in the NBA until I could get healthy and and be a, be a, a healthy contributor. Um, but yeah, again, overall, I enjoyed it. It was, you know, we're talking a little bit psychology here. It wore on me, though, um, when I came back. Uh, you know, I, I think I, I've, I've always tried to be a little bit of too much of a pleaser. And you know people were mad at me, I didn't like it. And um, you know, I, I probably started to put more pressure on myself from that whole experience and then coming back injured and the whole deal. It got to the point where that's time where I had to seek out sports psychology in all candor. And it, I think it kind of started with that decision and going over there along with getting hurt and having to really struggle for the first time my first few years in the NBA. Um, you know, it, it made me seek out sports psychology. It made me seek, seek out, you know, uh, you know, getting help in that regard and learning as much as I could.
0: What did you learn when you did seek that out and what was that experience like for you? And um, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious about it.
1: So, you know, uh, maybe my first, second year, um, the team actually approached me. So you're and, at Cleveland now? I'm Cleveland, I'm in Cleveland. The team actually approached me and said, hey, we think you should see someone. Um, How did you react to that? I, I didn't handle it well at all. It's like, uh, I'm fine. You know, I, I'm, there's nothing wrong with me. You know, and that's the way I looked at it. Um, I don't think they handled it well. Like, you know, I basically went to a psychiatric clinic where there was a sports psychologist in there at Cleveland Clinic. So it's like, you know, walk in and like, you know, this is, this is you know, I'm a young kid. Like, this is where all the crazy people are. Why am I here? I'm not crazy. Um, and I didn't handle it well. I did it for a couple times, but I didn't really buy in. I didn't really, I wasn't ready. My mind wasn't ready for it yet. I was, you know, um, it was kind of getting pushed on me um, at a time where I was like, well, just, you know, give me, let me play more, you know, let me, let me get healthy, let me get, let me play more, I'll be fine. And, uh, you know, I actually probably really did need it, but you know, you gotta be ready for things. It's gotta be right for you. Uh, so at the time it, it really wasn't. Um, it wasn't until a year later, um, somebody gave me a book. Um, I said, you know, the guy was like, are you having fun? I go, no, you just don't look like you're having fun. It was a, an announcer that also does, uh, did bowling stuff and was big, big into bowling, oddly enough. And um, I got the book that he suggested. Uh, I, I devoured it. What book was it? It was Thinking Body, Dancing Mind uh, by Jerry Lynch. Uh, I devoured it and I
0: Why do you think you were ready then or was it that you trusted that guy that he might like why why do you think you devoured it you got into it and you just started
1: reading like what what do you think about it spoke to you I think the best way for me at the time with where I was and I didn't trust anyone or anything and I didn't want anyone to think anything bad of me I didn't like I don't know if I was might have been good talking about what was going through my mind so for me I think what really helped at first was reading and just kind of reading it and placing myself in those situations. And the light went off and said, yeah, I do do that. You know, I do um, get ahead of myself. Sometimes I don't handle success well. It puts more pressure on me and I don't do that well. Um, you know, sometimes I think, think too far ahead or I'm thinking too far in the past. And I think this book particularly, and just, it was kind of cool because it's, it's, it's kind of uses Taoist principles. Um, to, and relates him to sports and it was probably the right, exact right book for me um, where it was a little bit spiritual, it was, it was a little bigger picture and that in turn really connected with me and I really, really got acutely interested, I mean I've read that book oh a hundred times Wow. underline, highlight went through the exercises but then I also read everything else and um, I think Got a great enjoyment of it, and it really, really helped save my career. Um, and, I, you know, in that process, I also started, once I started to learn, I wanted to sit down and talk to people like you. Because I'd been learning all this stuff, and I almost wanted to show off what I learned, but I also wanted to learn, like, okay, God, how, how can I be different? What, what do you think? And have a debate and conversation with someone about it. Um, what I was thinking and the exercise I was doing and what may help, what may not help. Why am I struggling with this still, whatever it is? And I was ready to talk and wanted to talk and seeked it out. And I went and saw three different ones over a few-year period because I read something they liked, and I reached out to them and said, hey, I'd like to talk to you. So, um, you know, it's just kind of an evolution for me. Um, but it's, the evolution uh, started with me fighting it. And then, two, I was able to accept it because I read it, um, and it was the right, right, right thing at the right time for me. And like I said, again, I, I, I had never had, once I said that, I'd never had more joy and more fun and had more peace in playing basketball than I did when I, when I got into that. I just, it was, it, was, it was a magical time for me as just as far as enjoying it and being a consistent performer and the peace and calmness and just the, the exercises that kind of kept me in line, it, just, it, was, it was fantastic.
0: It's such an interesting thing for me to think about because I've worked with pro athletes, and I think people in my field are helpers. Like that's why we got into it. Like, you know, if I I like to make money as much as the next guy, but for me, uh, where that's on my list of like what I love, like it's on the list. But my number one is that I love to help people, and I think people in our field often want to just help someone and jump in and dive right in. But to your point they might not be ready for that and the beauty of a book is that they can pick it up whenever they're ready and like I'm thinking more about it I think about like what Phil Jackson did with his guys and just would give them books and
1: inner game of tennis right I mean he gave that to Steve Kerr Steve Kerr knight from Still, there he told me like well I got a book for you to read and I read inter game and then I read intergame with tennis oh my gosh I love that I read that 50 times with you know, I bought 50 copies because I like to highlight it each time what was important to me as I was reading it. So, um, Literally the book next to my bed right now is Intergame of Tennis. Oh, it's a great book. It's great. It really simple um, for everyone to understand, translatable to other other sports, other things. It's, it's, a, it's a great book.
0: But it, to me, it, it struck me. And uh, Elton Brand, who you uh, who is a Dukie uh, and also a top three pick, he was the first pick and played a long career in the NBA as well, he said a book helped him on his path. Uh, Laurent Prophet, who uh, played down the street from where we are at Maryland, who played in the NBA, I think he said Grant Hill, another dookie, gave him a book and set him on his path to think about the mental side. And so I'm just thinking a little bit as I work with people of the power of giving someone a book and and, and how that can be the teacher. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if I'm teaching you, or if the book is teaching you, like for me, honestly, what I want to get fulfillment out of is knowing that I helped you on your journey. And that could be 0.01%. It could be 1%. It doesn't matter to me. I just want to be able to help people learn the things that I learned in grad school. And if a book does that, great. Or a YouTube clip or, you know, a tweet or, you know, whatever it might be, a podcast. Uh, for me, that, that's, that's the cool thing.
1: Yeah, it's, um, you know, being a teacher. Uh, the helper. I mean, you're really a teacher when you're a sports psychologist. And a coach, by the way. And a coach. Same thing. And a coach. Um, you have to be patient. Um, and you also have to know that not everyone learns and thinks and does things the same way. And I think some s- teachers, coaches, sports psychologists want to have their way of doing it. And I don't think that's the way to look at it because, you know, just like, you know, we learn about learning differences in school, and how much further we've come in the last 15 years. And looking at kids' learning differences and making, putting them in a better position to succeed. You know, athletes have the same way, and we're learning, right? And I may not learn. I may learn better through reading at times, or I may be able to learn better through talking to people. And there's a sequence to how it all happens. You know, in my particular situation, like you know, and it sounds like some of the other guys. And I think maybe. You know, one of the learning deficiencies that an athlete may have is the ego gets in the way. And me sitting there and telling you and and feeling sorry for myself and talking about my problems, you're almost taught not to do that, right, As 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 a young player. And it actually, you know, I probably wasn't ready. I was told not to, like, don't complain, don't bitch, don't, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, don't whine, just get over it, right? From a coaching standpoint, and, you know, my ego probably protected me from being comfortable talking to someone right away. I can also tell you, like, I talked to so many sports psychologists after I read their books because I just got really into it. And in some situations, the sports psychologist was better in person. And some day, oh, man, the book was really good. That yeah. wasn't nearly as good. Yeah. So, um,
0: Well, the difference is, like, in person, I, we can say the wrong thing. We can give the wrong tone, the wrong body language. Same thing with with coaching. And I wanted to get into this with you is we've had conversations over the years about system basketball. And you've said things to me that have resonated about the power of system basketball. And I think my job's the same way. Like here are the systems, here's the framework. Now within that system and within that framework, yeah, we're going to individually tailor whatever you need to be your very best. So like. To me, I have a framework that I'm working with, a system that's backed by science and data and research. But yeah, each individual is different. And what you need and what the person next to you need could be very different as far as approach within the system. But for me, I think about creating systems and processes to put ourselves to the best pace to- best space to be successful. But then within that, there's a whole lot that goes on. Talk about systems and what you've learned over the years and how you think about that word. Uh, It's obviously a very popular word, especially in basketball, but how do you think of system and and specifically as as it relates to basketball?
1: I think, you know, from a basketball standpoint and from, you know, uh, you have to have a common language. um, And I think you have to have systems. Uh, I think you need to look at the whole thing as a program, not as coaching a team. I think if it's just a team, it's not quite big enough because you have to have the support around it from trainers to holistic needs uh, from player development, everything along those lines. And you have to have systems to make that all work, to get everybody on the same page when you're working with a a group. And I think it's also something a player can buy into more. If your system is good and the people running it believe in it, um, then it's more likely you're going to be able to connect with a guy. It's more likely, you know, um, that you know that system and that program and the people you have working are going to be able to have some success stories that build credibility. Um, you know, it's definitely the case with the Spurs, for example. There is that is R.C. Buford calls it a program. Popovich calls it a program. He never called a team. They called a program, our program, and they look at it that way in a big picture, holistic environment where guys have ownership. Um, but there's a a level of accountability, and they're constantly trying to get better and achieve excellence, and they use systems to help explore those, for example. Um, So it's, uh, you know, I just think that, you know, being around that, it's it's, it's exciting to be around. Um, Mark Shapiro, uh, Indians GM Toronto, was one of the first guys that I met that really looked at it that way as a GM I connected him with R.C. Buford. I said, you guys need to meet. This is really cool what he's doing. R.C. was blown away and adopted a lot of the things that Mark was doing. Mark is, you know, this whole system process of player development and team building and so on. He's, you know, by many, many people in the NBA have gone and just kind of tried to learn from him. Uh, Sam Presti, uh, you know, we're all at some level, we get around Mark and we're in awe of him because of the, you know, the work he's, he, he started it and, and built while he was there.
0: And now with the Blue Jays, they actually hired a guy named Angus Mumford, who came from the IMG Academy, who's a, a big shot. I don't even want to say it that right. Who's very well respected in my field and now works full time with the Blue Jays. Um,
1: right. And, and I'll tell you, it's interesting. Like A lot of times, um, sports psychologists surf for players. And I think in this particular situation, Mark with a guy, worked with a guy named Charlie Marr. Charlie's out of Rutgers. And Charlie's a sports psychologist and he helped build these systems that Mark had, these organizational developmental systems that took the whole person into account and the whole program into account. And uh, it's someone that, you know, that many teams have consulted with as well.
0: It's interesting you say that because when I work with teams, the coach, first of all, if the coach isn't bought in, I'm not gonna be successful with the work that I do. Uh, And then secondly, when someone, when the coach will introduce me to somebody, it could be a stranger, they'll say, Brian works with me probably more than he works with any of our players. Right. And so to have a coach that's open and willing to <clears throat> leverage and use that, like Nick Sabin's a good example. Like Sabin has three guys that he leans on for this sort of stuff in different types of ways. If Sabin's not using it, why the heck would the players ever? be interested in buying in and college and pro are different, but I think my job is often to develop a relationship with the staff, help them while still developing personal individual relationships with the players to help them be their best. And that can get tricky sometimes. And right. it, it is, it is a, uh, a balancing act because if you lose the trust of the players and especially in the pro level, uh, you're done because, and I've read about it and I know it's happened in different places and I'm not going to call, I'm not going to say those places, but, um, you know, there have been players that have said, well, they were just talking to management the whole time and, and this, that, and that. So developing a relationship with the coaches to help the coach be the best coach they can be and then help the player be the best player they can be and understanding that, you know, you can do both of those, but it's hard.
1: I, I think very strongly that it's great to work with players for a sports psychologist, but it's even greater to work with a coach. Mm. It's better for the program. Because he can coach the coach on, hey, these are the things where I get out of whack. But also use problem solving. I'm struggling with this kid. What do you suggest? He's like this. How do I connect with him? What's the right way to get this guy focused on moving on, for example? How should I say thing? I think a coach having a relationship, a working relationship, and a trusting relationship with a sports psychologist is one of the best things that I've ever done, you know, as, as, as a front office guy, and understanding that. And I partly understood that because I resisted it first when I was young, and I said, "Well, a lot of guys are going to resist it." So I talked to the coach, like they're going to resist it from maybe a sports psychologist. There's some guys that might buy in, but day-to-day combat, if you're handed with this, re- handed this resource that you can call and talk to at any time, it's allowed to be around and can see the environment and help work with you and think a little bit outside the box on how to connect with a player or how your player development program is working or, you know, I mean, how can I make him better as a coach? And, you know, he's struggling with this, you know. I I just think for a basketball team specifically, that's what my background is. I think a coach working with a sports psychologist can help in so many levels. It's interesting uh, because the other thing I think people
0: that aren't in it don't realize is that head coach – a, there's usually ego involved. I haven't met too many head coaches that don't have some ego. Um, but the secondary part is they don't usually have that many people that they can go to and speak honestly and openly with because they have to make sure that they're running the ship. And it's often hard for them to lean on other people around them in that way. Um,
1: Open, honest, and really important in confidence. Mm-hmm. That's so important. Like, you have to keep whatever a coach is saying to you in confidence because he's got all these people, right? You it's know, the same but, thing
0: for a CEO. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's the it's, same thing. And they have to have their stuff together, and they have to make sure that they're heading in the right direction. But they also have to have the vulnerability to say, hey, I'm, I'm struggling with this or that, and having somebody to go to for that. Um, I, had,
1: I had a conversation along these lines Mark, with Mark Cuban about sports psychology because I, I sit and talking talking to him one night, ran into him at a, at a, at a restaurant in a hotel uh, at the All-Star game. And I go, you know, what do you, uh, your sports psychology, what do you do there? And he's like, it's really for the coaches. He goes, you know, first of all, they all have flaws and, you know, just like anybody else. But again, it, and it kind of lined up with where I was on it. He goes, but you know, they, they can really help the coaches figure out ways to connect with guys in the right way. So there was an alignment in how we both thought. And I just, I, f- I felt like he was, totally right
0: it's interesting because the Mavs have a guy named Don Kalkstein who you're referring to who's been there for a long time Um, but this is an interesting thing when you brought up Mark Shapiro which is almost every major league baseball team now has full-time guys uh, and a team of guys yeah Um, and I look at baseball and I say all right analytics really was born out of baseball Um, and I look at why that is and think about that and I think definitely the minor league system has a role to play like they have the Access to all of these people that are in their system or program, um, but why do you think baseball has been?
1: I, I have strong strong idea why, because I think first of all, individual sports um, lean on uh, sports psychology probably more than team sports, and baseball at some level is an individual sport, and you know you're up at the base, you're up at, up at bat, swinging a bat. Your mind's racing. There's time, all those things, and it's a mano a mano type thing. And I think the baseball players buy buy into it so well. I also think you're getting them at such a young age, you know, getting them 18, all of them, and really having to work up. You know, these guys have to earn their way up, um, and they're willing to do anything to do it. But I think, I think one of the reasons is it's as much of an individual sport, and guys know that they struggle with things. Uh, you know, a team sport, a basketball player, he can make excuses like, yeah, well, they didn't run a play for me and
0: pass me the ball pass me.
1: the ball was off. Right. You know, he threw me the he threw the ball to the wrong shoulder and I went the wrong way. Like you can make up all these excuses. Right. In baseball, when you're up there with a pitcher and he's throwing, you know, 85, 95, whatever it is. And some curves and like, hey, you got to figure it out. And if your mind's in the way, you're probably screwed. And I think that's probably as much as anything is it's that that manui mona, Manu type thing um, uh, where it's it's more of an individual sport, and I think individual sports in general would have more buy-in.
0: Yeah, I mean, golf is clearly at the forefront. Almost every golfer on tour has worked with somebody. Tennis and tennis too. Um, but it is interesting to think like you see it some in football now, you see it some in basketball now, uh, you see it some in hockey. Uh, it, it you know I've worked with pro soccer um, and. Uh, it is interesting because people always ask me like, what's the most mental sport? And I usually look at them and I'm half serious, I'm half joking, but mostly serious. I'd say whatever sport you play, um, because I really think that there's elements to everyone's performance that are mental. And if we are cluttered with that, um, it's really gonna impact our play as, as you sort of uh, spoke to earlier. I wanna shift away from this and, and get into the Spurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you go to them later in your career and you join a team that's established Um, that has, you know, two of the greatest players of all time, um, but one that's in his prime. Uh, I think he was the MVP of the year that you guys won it all. Um, But what's it like going to a team like San Antonio, where I look at that roster, and I did it last night to look at that roster, and not only do you have Duncan and Robinson, but you've got Parker, you've got, I think, Rookie Ginobili, uh, but then more than that, you've got guys like Bowen, Malik Rose, with Steve Smith with you. I mean, mm-hmm. these are guys who, um, you know, Steve Kerr, these are guys who not only were great basketball players, but if I look at that roster and see what those guys are doing now, um, they're all over the NBA in all kinds of different capacities. What was it like for you entering that, that sort of group? And also, I wanna, I'm just curious about what it was like to be on a championship team uh, and play on that team. What that experience was like for you as a player?
1: Well, I mean, the Spurs' atmosphere um, and going there um, was it was uplifting. I think. And you know, the two things that were kind of got me into, the, got me thinking about all this is you know talking to Mark Shapiro, living in Cleveland when I came went down to San Antonio. he came So you down developed to-
0: that relationship as a player. Yeah,
1: yeah, and he's the general
0: manager of the Indians.
1: Yeah, it? yeah, we have. Similar backgrounds, both from, both from this area, I knew his dad. Um, so, Mark used to come over on Sundays for dinner um, when he was an intern uh, with the Indians and worked his way up. So, Mark and I's relationship is long. Um, he's a brilliant guy. He's a wonderful guy. But, you know, seeing how he was going to run, a, when it was time for him to be a general manager, seeing how he was doing was exciting. Being in the Spurs program, and being around pop and RC and the system-based approach they had, the holistic-based approach, had, I was like, I'm going to do this. This is cool. So between those two things, um, I got excited about basketball and possibly being in the front office and, um, you know, building, building a program of my own. Um, the Spurs, that, drew,
0: that drew you to go there? Yeah. That's so the draw of like I want to be around a great. No, no,
1: I, I didn't go there. I didn't have any choices. Right? I mean, there, you know, there weren't people after my ten years in Cleveland. You know, I finished pretty well. The last year had some had, had had some injuries, but finished finished my time in in Cleveland fairly well. And um, you know, there still wasn't a lot of opportunities and roster spots. And you know, there's a juggling, and the Spurs called and I jumped on it. Um, great team, being able to play with David Robinson and Tim Duncan, and, you know, no one knew who Popovich really was then, really. I mean, they had won one championship already, but, um, you know, I don't think anyone really he, – he didn't let anyone in to let him know either. Um, you know, he, he was very guarded in that regard uh, from, from the public. He still, still is. He's, he's better now. <laughs> he's uh, more approachable now than, than ever. But at the time, you know, it was very – you know, top secret type, you know, almost, you know, uh, CIA-like secrecy around what they were doing. Um, But going there and playing and being in that environment, being around those caliber of people um, and playing with them, you know, Tim Duncan and David Robinson and Terry Porter and Steve Kerr, and you know, when I first got there, that was my first, I played there for three years, my first year, just a great group of guys and being in that atmosphere being the focused work but it also being fun like making it fun making it interesting making it more than just about basketball making it about what was going on in the world how
0: did you do that how did they do that? pop
1: talked about things pop would you know he all the you know you'd have shooting contests who believes in what this tax plan should be and who believes in what that should be all right and then okay we're going to play against each other and see see which one it should be winner that's what it should be and he would just kind of bring real world events and You'd go on a you'd go on a random stop at a tour at a civil rights museum, for example, instead of going to practice. I mean, he just would the m- human side make of it. sure that the human side was in it. That its perspective. Hey, what we do is great. What we do is important, but we're not that important. And let's look at this. And what else is going on outside of this? You know, let's be bigger than just being in this gym and you know throwing the basketball. Now, when we're in here, I'm gonna be. A crazy guy and I'll be on you and I'm going to hold you accountable and we're going to work hard but let's make sure we keep it in proper perspective and it was it was just really exciting to be around it was intellectually exciting
0: it's one of the things I literally I told you I was talking to a coach this morning and we had this conversation of like all right you want to be obsessed at your craft but what do you what what defines you outside of that and like what do you enjoy talking about what do you enjoy doing outside of it because if you're a stress ball and you're just constantly ruminating and obsessive and and that's that's all you are um and don't get me wrong like you know your jordans kobe's you know a lot of the greats have been obsessive but if you also listen to them they also had other things that they were interested in
1: well and phil phil jackson was another one that kind of looked like like pop where there was there was an intellectual balance that needed to happen um to make it sustainable Uh, to not burn it out, to, you know, from a sports psychology, like, you know, not put the weight of the world on yourself. Hey, there's other things out here. Um, You know, Phil Jackson was great with that as well. And uh, I think that probably really helped Kobe. I mean, if Kobe didn't have that, he'd have been such a grinder maybe. You know, maybe it wouldn't have – he wouldn't have been the same player. I mean, obviously an incredible talent, but having Phil kind of frame who he was, frame what they were doing in a way – that made it a little softer for his teammates because he was tough. Um, Probably helped everyone involved.
0: One of the concepts that I am really fleshing out and talking about is Tom Coughlin wrote in his book, uh, Earn the Right to Win is the book. He said, we have to be humble enough to prepare and confident enough to perform. And one of the things that I've done is really study these sort of great performers is you look at a Kobe and he was so neurotic in his preparation, so perfectionist. Like everything had to be right footwork, you know, and he was going to go at it. But the moment he stepped on the floor, he was the black mama. Like the moment he stepped on the floor, that was going to be pure joy, fun, but it's also going to be killer. Like I, there's almost some narcissism to what I need when I step on the floor. I'm curious about Tim Duncan. So a guy that you were. Let me, let me yeah, go. Let me, go. You,
1: and one thing, something else that was always struck me as interesting is, is Michael Jordan never called it. Anything but a game of basketball. He always framed what when he talked about basketball, it was a game of basketball. He always put it in reference as a game. And I always thought that was pretty interesting. And I thought maybe it kinda helped him keep it in keep it in the right perspective. But he always talked about, you know, when I play the game of basketball, it was always let's make sure it's not, you know, everything. It's just a game. And I think he kinda framed it in that way that probably helped him kinda, you know, someone like Kobe or someone like Michael with all the attention that they have. Uh, someone like LeBron, with all the attention they have, they have the whole world on their shoulders if, if, if they'd let it happen. And framing it in a way where it's the game of basketball for Jordan, and if, I think LeBron at times has, has kind of embraced the game of basketball as well, because it just helps put in a proper perspective for these people that, you know, hey, they're the greatest in the world, a franchise and a city, and everyone is staring at every move they do and depending upon them to be unbelievable. That those guys have to have a special type of uh, character because they feel a special type of um, pressure they have to have a you know put themselves in the right mindset to be able to handle the intensity of the, that that they must feel
0: yeah and like You've been around LeBron when you were in Cleveland, and like one of the things that we observed, at least I'll say—I'll speak for myself, I observed when he goes to Miami, he's joined, creating the Supersteam, and they lose to Mavericks, and you could see him, in my opinion, from the outside looking in, lose the game of basketball, lose like this is supposed to be fun, and trying to take on this villainous personality that wasn't authentic to him um, was an interesting thing as an outsider looking in to see that happen and then see him sort of shift – at least from the outside looking in, how he approached it. But the game of basketball thing is awesome, and I'm glad you brought that up. But I also think those people, they also prepare like it's a job. So they are professional in their preparation, right? They're, They're looking at all the nuances, the details, the game. They're trying to get an edge, whatever it takes to get an edge. So in that sense, they're putting pressure on themselves to be very, I'm gonna use that word, neurotic again, so that they can play the game and just make it a game. And I've heard Jordan talk about it. I was like, before the game starts, he's like, I joke around. Like, I would be a prankster. I would, right. you know, mess with people. Cause I knew once that game started, I was just gonna have to play. But I think there is a toggle there and there's a push pull of like, those guys also, when they're preparing, uh, like they're serious to use the pop, you know, they're serious about their preparation, but then they don't take the game too seriously when
1: they're performing. They, you know. Take what you're doing serious, but don't take yourself too serious. That's yeah. a pop thing. Like, but take
0: but, but take the preparation serious. We're going
1: to be serious here, but we're not going to take ourselves serious. We're yeah. not going to take everything serious. Yeah. We're going to be serious, but, I mean, that's that's a pop thing. And I think it probably aligned with Jordan. He, he looked at it as, you know, it's a game. It's, I want to win the game. I'm prepared. I want to win the game. Yeah, um, Rather than this weighty thing that some of us at times all probably place too much pressure on at all.
0: Uh, Duncan, uh, one of the guys that I've just loved watching his career, loved watching how he handled things. I think once again, from the outside looking in, like part of his legacy is actually what they continue to do without him. Um, and how he, I think impacted the guys who are still there. Uh, talk about what he did, how he did it, what made him special.
1: Great poise. Um, great focus. Uh, Highly competitive, um, very, very smart person uh, with incredible hands, incredible um, vision uh, for what's going on. Like he sees the game. He saw the game. You know, he saw where that rebound was going before anyone else and made it look easy getting there. Um, just really a smart person. Smart guy and a cutthroat competitor that not everyone kind of sees, you know, I mean your teammate You know he give you a little look every once in a while like or give pop a look and say, you know What's going on with this guy? Um, you know, he wanted to win and he did all the work necessary um, He was a great teammate not a good teammate a great teammate. He always had your back He was always supportive, but he was demanding as well and and um, you know, what, what a great privilege uh, anyone who's played there has, has had to be able to play with the guy. But you know, he's One of the things you just think, like, what's, he's really just smart. He's a smart person. No matter what he was doing, he's he was just smart.
0: And that championship team, you had a lot of different personalities on that team, uh, and you were there for three years. What made that team special?
1: The year we won the championship, uh, you know, I think, you know, Tim, uh, you know, we, we had an interesting group. You know, Steven Jackson was – he was – he was a wild hare, but he, you know, he, he make big shots. He had, um, fortitude, uh, is the right way to say it, I guess. Balls is he another way balls. to say it. He had balls. Um, Manu Ginobili. Oh my gosh. He was just the most fun guy to watch, especially then where he was just. Wild un- animal. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> great story that first year, you know, pop is really struggling because pop, has gotten looser in how they play and less structured in how they played. Back then it was far more structured, uh, far more of a chess game than this big flowing thing that happens now. And um, more, more like dot to dot basketball we've talked about, the old way of playing. And Pop was playing the old way, using the rules that were there and the whole deal. And Manu couldn't do that. And it was like, you know, Oil and water, he and Pop at first, where it's like, you know, Pop would be on him about, why would you possibly throw, I mean, it'd be, it was ridiculous the first 20 games. And finally, you know, Pop, Manu just listened, 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 and Manu finally said, Pop, that is how I play. (laughs) That is how I play. He just looked at him, that is how I play. And Pop looked at him because he just, you know, the the person and the competitiveness and all that stuff were some things that Pop respected so much. And he's like, what do I say to that? (laughs) That is how I play. Okay, I I guess i got to figure out to work around it because that's how he plays. And he did, and he gave Manu the leash, but to, to go and do crazy things. And Manu is one of the great competitors and most beautiful basketball players. If you go back and look at his career and watch old games and the whole deal, if you're a basketball purist or if you are a just love to, I mean, sports psychology or whatever it is, and you like to see um, excellence, Manu does it in such, is, is excellence in such an artistic, highly competitive way. But him being on that team, and then, you know, Steve Kerr, for example. I mean, he won a game for us, in, you know an important game against Dallas in the playoffs. But just different guys were able to step up uh, in different situations um, that, you know, I mean, having David Robinson um, as well. I mean, we were a unique team. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was really a, just a wonderful group, smart, high character, competitive group, um, obviously built around David uh, Robinson, but at that point, especially Tim. And having these young guys, Tony and Manu, that just, you know, just kind of all came together in such an incredible way.
0: Yeah, so we're not videoing this, but Danny like lit up as he was talking about it. I can see him almost like getting back into that space, and uh, I'm sure it was an exciting time for
1: you. Yeah, it was great. It was great.
0: So uh, I just want to get your sense, and then we'll start wrapping up of what that transition is like to going to the front office, and how you have to adjust your mentality and your mindset from being in the huddle to being, you know, working in a front office to being a general manager uh, to now, you know, working in the capacity that you're working in, like. How did you have to adjust, and what goes into being a general manager and the mentality that you have to have to be a successful general manager?
1: Um, You know, I I decided to go into the front office. um, Another quick story, about 20 games to go. I'm working out the game day in the the gym at the hotel, the Crescent Court Hotel in Dallas, and I'm stretching, and I'm doing ab workout and the whole deal, and Pop's down there doing his workout, he comes over to me and he's 20 games he goes, what do you think about working with RC next year in the front office? Oof. I said, no, uh, I hadn't thought about it really. I'm kind of focused on now and maybe I'll play. He goes, no, nah, I think you better think about it. Oh, man. <laughs> I think you probably think about it. We may have a roster spot for you next wow. year. We'll see. And it was fine. You were um, good with it. It was, it was kind of funny. Yeah. And uh, went out, you know, the last 20 games and did fine and had some good playoff moments that year um, but from there transitioned right away to the front office and uh, um, you know R.C. Buford was great to me Uh, the the organization at the time and like most organizations was very small they're all a lot bigger now Uh, had a lot of input with working with him on, on, on doing things the hardest part is that it was work and I've never been in an office before and being in the office all day and figuring out—you know—I've been here. I am thirty-seven years old. Never been in an office before, and I have to go kind of like it's just different. Even though it's basketball, even like you know, okay, I got to write an email. I got to write a scouting report. I got an expense report. You know, you know, all of these things. You know, you just—it's—it's it's foreign, and I really struggled with it at first. I really struggled with, at first, the scouting and, and being on the road. You know, you'd go on the road 19, 20 days a month. I had a young family. Um, I had a really hard time with that. Um, after, you know, first year, just kind of got the second year, started to have a hard, you know, like quite an adjustment, just like, you know, do I really want to do this? And um, found a good rhythm um, and lifestyle through it, working through all that. But I did struggle with it at first, and then I got the job in Cleveland. At a young age? At a young age. I was, I'd was i been in the front office for two years. Probably needed more time, you know, before I went and got the uh, GM job in Cleveland. But, uh, you know, you only have so many times to take a GM job that LeBron James is there. And uh, so I took the job. Uh, we moved back to Cleveland. Um, my wife is from Cleveland. And... Um, another transition because it was such a big job in managing people. When I was with um, the Spurs, I was just, I was a role player in the whole thing in the front office as well. And played my role and was honest and told people what I thought and tried to be smart and tried to be prepared, tried to be all those things. Um, But you know, mine was just an opinion, it wasn't my decision. And to go there and be in a position to have to make decisions and have to lead and have to hold people accountable, um, all of those things. Was a big challenge. I had a great partner in Mike Brown, um, someone I trusted quite a bit. That I worked well with him. He worked well with me. My my strengths and my limitations aligned in a good way. We were a good puzzle together. You know, I think I made him better, and he definitely made me better. um, Where we were able to have success, and I think build a good program. Um, Second year in, we 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 went to we won the Eastern Conference Championship and. Fourth and fifth year, we didn't we we lost in the second third round of playoffs, and um, but had sixty one and sixty seven game seasons and ended up learning a lot, but had to learn a lot on the job. It's interesting because I think people think that general managers. I think a lot of people
0: play fantasy sports now, and they think like being a general manager, you're just like playing fantasy football or basketball, and you're just like plugging in guys and and adding them and. Um, at least my observation of being around people like you is like, it's so much more than that from a, uh, management standpoint. And, uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Well,
1: yeah. So again, I came from the Spurs system and Spurs program, but Mike Brown wasn't pop. I wasn't pop. Neither of us were RC. We were our own people. So we had to kind of model. We wanted to model what they did because it was, it was wonderful. But it had to be ours, and um, some of the strengths were better than what they were doing at the Spurs because it, they aligned more with what Mike's strengths were or mine. But there were other areas where we just like Pop would do this. I'm like, well, I don't think we could pull that off, you know. And um, uh, but building a program and emulating something, but you know, understanding and I think we understood like there's a way we're going to have to do this program. It's you know. It's going to be a lot of things like the Spurs way and the Spurs culture, but it's got to be something that fits, fits who we are. And as kind of partners and leaders in this whole thing, we had to build it around Mike and I's, Mike and I's personality. So here's what
0: I want to end with. Mm-hmm. As we mentioned earlier, you played for three legendary coaches. Yeah. Um, so you're going to have to pick one of these coaches that you would want for this situation. All right, so I'm going to pose a situation. You're going to have we'll to pick We'll see if
1: I'm going to play along with this. We'll see.
0: You're going to, you're going to just pick one. I'm not one. committing
1: to agree to this yet.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you have a young team, and you need to establish a culture. Which of those three coaches? And just remind everyone, we've got Morgan Wooden, who's a high school legend, Coach K, who's a college legend, and uh, Coach Pop, who's an NBA legend. So Danny has to choose one of those three. And we'll start with a young team that needs to establish a culture.
1: Well, I think, you know, I'm going to take the easy way, and Coach Wooten was a high school coach, so he was used to working with young players. Uh, He could kind of lead in a way that would make that work. Um, Incredible poise, didn't yell, didn't scream, um, made you understand you were part of something bigger than yourself. Um, You know, I'd probably say him with a young team.
0: You have a very talented team, which has an opportunity to win a championship.
1: Uh, I mean, again, all three. Let me say that. Um,
0: we know that you're going to say all three for all of them. there are all they're three legends. for all of we them. But it. I'm going to
1: say why one or yeah why one one why I said one of all of those three. Um, you know, I think Kay, uh, I'll go between Kay and Pop on that one. Um, you know, you saw what Kay did with the Dream Team, for example, and getting guys together that weren't on a team before and thrown together. How he was able to. Um, make that happen. But it was over a shorter season, too. I mean, uh, you, you can talk to him about it. He goes, you know, I how would I do this over 82 games? Um, you know, because it was so intense what he did in that month-long period of, and over 16 games or whatever it is. But doing over 82 is a different animal. Uh, Popovich is obviously great with it, with a talented team. You know, one thing they would both have is right now is instant respect and credibility when they walked in the room that they could coach that team, and those guys would have, you know, the trust and understanding and competence, and they'd see that the coaches had the confidence to to pull it off.
0: So I get that with Pop, but why do you think Kay was able to elicit that from pros? Like, what what do you think allowed him to reach the pros uh, for the U.S. team?
1: I talked to you earlier about why I chose there. Um, His passion and ability to connect is freakish. And then you tie that to, you're doing this, he's doing this for his country. He's a West Point grad, he's a proud American. And you know, his passion behind that, his ability to connect, most coaches in the NBA they don't even come close to his ability to be able to do that, and then you give him that for, with with a real theme behind it and a real purpose, purposeful connection. Um, you know, I think he just did an incredible job. Obviously,
0: so I'm guessing I know the answer to this, And this is going a little off the script, but uh, he's flirted with the NBA. He did flirt with the NBA and the Lakers yeah. and and different things. What do you think would have happened if he had gone to the NBA? I,
1: I think he'd been great, um, but you got to have a good roster. And uh, you can't go get someone connect with you and say, OK, I want to come here. It's not, it doesn't work that way. There's money, there's draft, there's like everything's got to line up in a way, and it's less controllable. Um, so you know, had he gotten off to a good start, um, it's interesting. Brad Stevens, I think, is a great example. He walked into a great situation um, where they were kind of in this rebuild thing, um, kind of resetting the deck and gave him basically a year to make mistakes and learn on the fly. And that guy is smart. He is smart. He is so good. And by the point by the second year everyone because this guy his X's and O's is off the charts. So just his credibility with the group by that point really helped him earn the trust. But um, I got off track talking about Brad, but you know, it's it's an interesting thing with Coach K. I think he would have done great. I think he'll do he. He'd be a great coach anywhere um, but you need you need you need talent and you can't control that necessarily like you could in college
0: well i'm actually glad you brought up brad because i think everyone uh had an image of what a nba head coach looked like in a lot of ways brad didn't fit that mold coming no. in right? no he doesn't he didn't he didn't play at at that high level um he doesn't look the part <laughs> i think he was an insurance
1: guy before right. he took the job. And so... Um, but and, there, and he's walking in with a lack of credibility because so many of the recent college coaches that have tried, it hadn't gone well.
0: Yeah, so like, I had a conversation with him. I was fortunate to talk to him on the phone once. And what struck me about Brad was, A, how humble he was mm-hmm. and how good of a listener he was. And, you know, you go back to talking about what you and Mike Brown had to do and had you had to find your own path while still thinking about what made... San Antonio successful. And I think authenticity is also so important. And I think part of Brad's success so far is that he's going to be humble. He's going to be authentically him. And, you know, and like you said, he's really smart. So he's going to problem solve and figure out and come up with solutions. Um, But that sort of connected the dots for me a little bit as you were talking about you and Mike trying to figure out how to build the calves, figuring out all right what works best for me. And I think you like as we go we've got a couple more of these but you know Wooten uh Kay and Pop all do it differently and they're not all doing it the same exact way um even though Pop and Kay have a military yeah I think that's
1: we haven't talked about that that's really interesting to me yeah you know and I think from a coach's standpoint their military military background those academies teach you about leadership you know how many places were you you know not many people are taught really about leadership and how to lead and Live it, you know, they don't just teach it in a class, they live it every day. They embrace it, they respect it, understand the layers of decisions. They will go through all of that, and it really puts them in a um, unique position, I think, when they decide they want to be a coach. And it's, it's an alignment, they're different coaches and different, different, different strengths. Um, but uh, that military background, I think, both helped them quite a bit.
0: So you mentioned Brad Stevens' ability to do X's and O's. So my next question is, 10 seconds left in the game. Uh, it's tied. Uh, coach calls timeout. Uh, who do you want drawing up that final play?
1: I'll take Pop on this one. Um, I think he's great with it. I think he's unbelievably prepared um, going into those situations, seeing him behind, behind the screen, um, you know how he's prepared, and you know, has his team ready in those situations, practices, game situations a lot. And then has these little index cards in his pocket, and he jokes. He goes, "If you take these index cards away from me, because there are a lot of his out-of-bounds and end-of-game situations, don't take. If anyone takes these cards, I'm screwed. Don't tell anyone, but if anyone takes these cards, I'm screwed. So I'm just telling a secret. But uh, he ja- he jokes about it, and he has a level of humility as well in this whole thing. Uh, that's really fun to be around. So if you want to be the Spurs and you're
0: sitting behind the bench, just take his sport. Take jacket.
1: his take his sport coat, <laughs> and he's screwed. He's he's nothing.
0: It's interesting you say that. I had an idea like 10 years ago. I don't know if I brought this by you, but I am amazed that NBA coaches still use freaking dry erase clipboards. Like, what the heck are we doing in 2017, 2018? You know, what are we doing that we are going to use these dry erase boards that the markers still stick and yeah. you can't get rid of it. And I'm like, why don't they just came up with the iPads at the time? I'm like, why don't these teams have an uploaded uh, list of plays that they want to run? They've got a hundred plays. They can just go for it. Well, and it then, wasn't and, legal
1: you, up until two years ago, right? And you know, I mean, some of these old guys, they don't. Know are how any to turn guys on their using computer. iPads now to draw yeah, plays? yeah. There's people using iPads now, and you'll see if you're watching games. They can show tape or show things during the game in real time to players, and you'll see that a lot. There's things that you can do for end-of-game situations, all that stuff, so that really was a rule change. They were, you know, the NBA kind of regulated that before until it was ready in the last couple years Have opened that door, and I think you'll start to see that more and more.
0: See, my idea was like along the lines of the Surface Pro, where you're going to have this tablet, and you could draw on the tablet, but you could also upload these plays. So if you want to draw a play, you can draw it on the tablet, so you don't have to worry about a dry erase board. And you've got plays, and you put like the faces of the players and just move them around like a chessboard. Yeah, it
1: has to happen quick, but you also have to, I mean, you have to think on your feet, and that's you know, one of the great challenges of being a coach, cook- think based off who's in the game and who you're playing against. Sure. So it, it can't be so cookie cutter in my mind that it works that way. I mean, depending upon who's in the game, if it's this lineup and this guy, then I want this guy in this situation, this position, whatever it is. And they have this guy, you know, that I want to try to take advantage of it. As, as, and so option B is really now option A, for example. So, you know, coaching's a it's it's a hard job. But I respect the heck of it. You really do have to think under your feet under pressure. So, uh, if anyone
0: wants to pursue that idea, I'll help. I'll, I'll be involved. I'll invest in it. But Danny, I, I think is uh, is not on board. I'm going to go back to the coaching <laughs> thing. Uh, you have a star player who is not fulfilling their potential. Who do you want coaching that guy?
1: Uh, all three would be great. Um, talking about one of them, um, I, I think uh, uh, I'll. I'll say K this time, Um, his ability to connect and touch someone and get them to believe in themselves is, it's fantastic. I mean, he had me by my senior year, I was a good player, but he had me thinking like, I was the greatest thing in the world. And I walked like, I'd go in to get, you know, you're good, you're good. Yes, I am, you know, and and really helped me uh, understand and feel confident and think big.
0: Isn't that amazing? Like, I think the best leaders are the ones that can be critical without crippling self-esteem. So they can be critical of you and hold you to a standard that maybe you didn't even think you could hold yourself to, but they're not going to cripple your self-esteem. Because I think a lot of coaches, they just are constantly critical, but they don't, the player's self-esteem goes away and then they lose the player. So I think great coaches, and that's relationship-based stuff, but they they are critical, but they don't cripple their self-esteem. And I think that's, Probably what Coach K, uh, part of what makes him great. Well,
1: in, in that situation, you now trust is a big word, and he trusted me, and I felt like he trusted me implicitly. Which you know, you have his trust. One, you don't want to let him down. But two, you just have so much confidence because this guy over here that you think so so much of just he, I just trusted you to do anything and make whatever play needed to happen. So you have a team that is talented but doesn't get along. Which of those coaches? A team that is talented but doesn't get along, Um, all three. Uh, But for example, um, this time I'll say uh, K. Excuse me, this time I'll say Pop. Um, He has a great ability to cut through the BS. Um, He has a great ability to be honest. And you still trust and are comfortable with him. So I'd probably say that if there was an issue or whatever it is. You know, the, the thing about all three of these guys is they value character and they try to get kids with character. They try to get players with character. and Because they know that um, in hard times when things are bad and when there's bumps, um, that's what helps them. You know, Coach K, for example, you know, his thing for a while early was I want to get guys to treat their mom well i go, why? He goes, because I know that if they're capable of pro- propping their mom up, they're willing to think of something bigger than themselves. And they sell this vision of being something bigger than themselves, and you can get through these issues necessarily. You can take your take your way out, work your way through it.
0: Your team just won a championship and is looking to repeat. Which of those guys?
1: Um, team that won a championship uh, looking to repeat um, – you know, I think uh, you know. Let's go with let's go with K because he's done it. Um, they won a couple back to they won back to back. Uh, so his experience in that regard, um, and just being able to motivate and keep guys focused and um, uh, confident and keep the group together was. You know, I think he's displayed that he was great at it.
0: And last question, and then we're done. Uh, you're an underdog team, so you're a team that doesn't have high expectations. Yep. Uh, which one would you want to coach?
1: Coach Wooten. There's a lot of examples where you're down by seven with a minute to go, and he'll get in that huddle with poise and say, all right, we're going to win this game. Um, we got them exactly where we want them right now. And you're looking like, what the hell is he talking about? You know, as a kid, you know, you're down, so we're down seven. But he would walk into a huddle situation like that um, Downs, you know, happens happened a couple times a year, where you were in what most people would think is an impossible situation, and he'd walk in with incredible poise, um, and look and say, "We got this. We're going to get this. Uh, this is. Uh, they don't know what's coming right now, but we're going to pull this off." Um, it's famous. Some of his stories, and you talk to all the old players. You know, he just. He had an uncanny ability to walk in there with this incredible poise in those situations and get you to think, maybe it's possible. And more times than not, he pulled it off.
0: That's well, an interesting decision because, for those who don't know, DeMatha beat, at the time, Lew Alcindor, uh Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, in what is considered like one of the great high school upsets right. of all time. They hadn't lost a game in anywhere, and, and they came in and won, and that's an underdog knocking off – a David knocking off a Goliath. Yep. So, Danny, first of all, I just want to thank you for your time. This was a lot of fun. Glad to have you back in your home state. Um, and I just want to end by saying you mentioned that Morgan Wooten, Coach K, and Pop often want to recruit people of character. And you played for all three of those guys. And getting to know you over the years, you are a man of character. And uh, it's been really fun getting to know you uh, and getting to know your family a bit. And you're just you're just a man of character. And I have tremendous respect for you. And uh, I you're still in the middle of your journey. So sometimes I do this podcast with people at the end of their journey. Um, (laughs) But you're in the middle of it. and, And you're still in the heart of it. And I'm excited to see where that journey takes you but I just want to thank you for in a lot of ways mentoring me and you know I can come to you and bounce ideas of what I'm thinking or how I'm thinking and you can give me a player's perspective you can really give me a coach's perspective because of all those guys you've been around and then you can also give me a front office perspective and it's rare to have that triple threat of a person to rely on so I'm just really grateful to get to know you and uh, thank you for being you and I I appreciate it.
1: Brian thank you and I've I've really enjoyed getting to know you as well and excited how you've grown and evolved and found yourself in this career you, you, the conversations that we have now when we talk about things uh before i think i was doing more of the talking and now i'm doing more of the listening because you just really found a great groove and learned so much and had so many experiences that that helped guide you and as you as you continue on in this career
0: thanks danny and thanks to everyone for listening uh danny i don't think you're on social media no Is there anything that you want to promote that you're involved with? Um, uh, It could really be anything that you would want to share with the world uh, that we can sort of give a microphone or a platform to.
1: Yeah, listen to Brian Levinson's podcast more. Everybody, pass it around. uh, This one and others. So, thank you. All right, thanks, Danny. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. It was probably the right, exact right book for me. I was a little bit spiritual, it was a a little bigger picture, and that in turn really connected with me and I really, really got acutely interested. I mean, I've read that book, oh, a hundred times, Wow. underline, highlight, went through the exercises, but then I also read everything else, and um, I think got a great enjoyment of it, and it really, really helped save my career.